Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 12th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 11, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 4, episode 12, or what the German regionalization team named Laura's Secret Diary. I'm your host, John. In episode 11, Broken Leland Palmer confesses to killing Jacques Renault. Doc Hayward sympathizes and gives Andy a jar for a sperm's retest. The town gets giddy over food critic M.T. Wentz. Jean Renault gives Ben terms for kidnapped Audrey's return before Jean Stockholm syndromes Audrey, and Ben gets Cooper to be his money runner. Harold has Donna over for lunch and some uncomfortable diary reading, and Donna then enlists Maddie to help get Laura's diary from him. Josie returns from Seattle. Dick gives Lucy money for a problem. A storm goes through town. Judge Sternwood arrives. Harry helps Cooper on a bookhouse boys mission in the making. And Josie's cousin takes down Hank. So after having seen the entire series and, um, and in this particular case, the log lady intro, uh, for some of the wording in the first question, um, what questions are we left with? How are levels of illness illustrated in this episode? What can we make of the state of Leland Palmer? And how do facts fare in Twin Peaks' spiritual economy of wants and needs? How do disguises navigate the levels of Twin Peaks in this episode? Okay, before we can go into answering those questions, we're going to go into the behind-the-scenes production details to put this thing in proper context. So this was the one that was a quote-unquote written by Jerry Stahl, but really written by Mark Frost, Harley Payton, and Robert Engels. And it was directed by Todd Holland, one of my, one of my favorite uh, non-Lynch directors. Now, Todd Holland wasn't directly connected to Lynch or Frost in, in this way, but he actually was um, connected strongly with Leslie Linka Gladder who is one of my other all-time favorites of the, uh, of the non-Lynch Twin Peaks directors. Um, and, you know, Gladder, we've seen her work pretty regularly already, and we're going to see a lot more of her still. And um, how she got connected with Todd Holland is they were both uh, directors on American Stories, that Spielberg project from, um, I think, 86. And um, 
she she encouraged Holland to I mean to um try to get in the door and then she helped him in once he got here and um I mean he proved himself right away first thing he did he reviewed all the tapes that existed he outlined all the scripts to get up to speed of where the the story in progress was and then um during his concept meeting where he um he meets with at least Frost and um, likely Peyton and Engels were in the meeting room that time too um, to talk about the script, you know, the tone of each scene and what, you know, what it all means um, for the, for the greater whole. And um, in, um, in uh, Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes by Mark Altman, we got Holland on record saying, I asked a ton of very pointed questions that really tracked the mystery in a way that's hard to do when you just watch. Mark revealed a ton of secrets, which I was told was unusual. It was because I came to the door organized with a lot of homework, so he told me a lot of backstory with characters that helped me a great deal. And um, <laughs> also in Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, Peyton, uh, Harley Payton said, he would be our one young Turk. <laughs> so everybody was really impressed with the amount of research that, uh, that Holland was putting into this already. And, you know, he, he'd just gotten there. As far as the Great Northern Convention of the Week that he put in, it was a beauty pageant, which, um, you know, a lot of people have already said it. But it's basically proof that the Miss Twin Peaks arc had not been, um, you know, even conceived of yet, because I think they would have said, eh, we're going to do something like that later. You know, let's not let's not muddy the waters with something else. But what everybody really was impressed with here um, was, um, you know, the, the ceiling tile shot of the very beginning. We've got. Um, We've got Holland pitching it, and then, um, and then in Reflections by Brad Dukes, um, Holland told him, they completely supported it. That was essential because it was a really complicated shot to pull off in that day and age. And um, in the, the Twin Peaks Unwrapped book, which was, I believe, quoting from the Red Room podcast with Scott Ryan, um, Holland basically said they built the tunnel five times to scale and shot it with fiber optic camera that required all this special lighting. You had to light it to like T30 or something like that. Melt the scenery, stop to shoot, that kind of thing. But they got on board. And Holland continued, they loved a director with a vision. If you were speaking their language, they would just jump on board and support the creative. And, um, the best way I've heard the process of how much room and latitude the uh, the directors actually do get in Twin Peaks, um, Holland said it here. He said, top to bottom, it was a show designed around supporting David, and therefore it chose to become, very organically, a show that supported the director's vision for every single director who came through. So living up to David is hard, but you kind of do your thing and hope it fits into his world. And honestly, thoughts like that is exactly why I love Todd Holland. And I mean, you know, he he goes on to later do things like Wonderfalls. And, um, you know, he, he's always got this kind of, um, he, he's got this style of being able to express the internal stuff um, externally in a really economic way. And uh, we're going to see it here. We're going to see it um, in all his future work. And, um, I'm just really happy he got attached to Twin Peaks because, I mean, among other things, um, even Holland noticed that um, 
you know, the opening scene was absolutely fantastic, but the rest of the script lacked a little bit um, of like high stakes, I think is the way to put it. You know, it's, it's a lower key script overall. And um, he decided to create a weather opera to add a flow of energy to the whole thing. So, you know, we get the clouds, we get the thunder um, in these, um, in these transition shots at the, um, you know, starting in the middle of the episode. And then it ramps up until the electricity of the sheriff's station is actually like going in and out. Like, you know, they're going to lose power any second. And, um, you know, is it a callback to the flickering lights in the morgue in the pilot? Uh, maybe, I don't know, but, um, it, it seemed very organic the way it worked. And, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, (laughs) <laughs> the rain comes in and that's when um, Judge Sternwood enters and, you know, it's very, very um, dramatic. <laughs> and uh, then it basically ends with um, with power and foreboding, uh, for, foreboding of battle between Hank and Jonathan. And it ends with the flashlight breaking. You know, that's me paraphrasing reflections. And, um, and Holland says... That was the denouement of the storm. The rain had stopped, the thunder is receding, and you think everything is struggling to return to normal. But it turns out, as with all things in Twin Peaks, nothing is anywhere close to normal. So yeah, he came up with a lot of that stuff, but like, there's also this economical storytelling that he does in the first seven and a half minutes at the sheriff's station. It, you know, it goes from uh, Leland's interrogation to Doc Hayward's complicated sympathies to Andy's sperm quest to learning about Sternwood's arrival in Andy's boots with a side helping of Lucy growing, you know, her, her growing irritation with, uh, with Andy. And, um, you know, it's like all these storylines shared literal space and, um, you know, they, they all had room to grow and flow organically without getting in each other's ways. I mean, it was, it was, um, I mean, you know, it's not exactly ballet, but there was a lot of coordination that needed to happen to make all of that stuff flow without us losing the thread on anything. And, you know, everything just grew in that first seven and a half minutes. You know, great planning, well-balanced, and, um, you know, especially considering all the script woes of this episode. Now, the script of this episode, it was actually supposed to be the first time we got a team of a non or, you know, a first-time Twin Peaks writer with a first-time Twin Peaks director, but um, Holland got the benefit of uh, Terry Stahl completely being a mess on this episode. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, he he's since apologized in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, I don't want to hammer on him too hard for, um, you know, addiction issues, but, uh, you know, it was still an absolute disaster how this whole thing went down. Um, no one on staff knew him, but... Um, uh, Tony Krantz was a mutual agent of him as well as Frost and Lynch. So, um, you know, Krantz was basically trying to push this guy in the door and, um, you know, he, um, <clears throat> he'd written on shows like Alf. So, you know, it's like, okay, maybe there's a surreal kind of thing, whatever. Um, you know, we'll, we'll give him a try, I guess. And, um, According to Essential Wrapped in Plastic, um, we got a we got a note about how in Permanent Midnight he wrote how Twin Peaks production was smug and uptight, and um, in reality, what was happening was um, Stahl was getting high in their bathroom on heroin. He was missing deadlines and he was not fulfilling any obligations. Peyton and Reflections, he talked about how um, 
you know, taking credit is not something that you do. Um, you know, it's like, even if you add things to the script afterwards, you know, the, the main writer gets all the credit cause it's, you know, their, their financial bottom line. But, um, you know, th this one was handed in with like blood on the pages and whatever else. And, you know, it, it didn't make sense. You know, it was completely unfinished. And, um, you know, Frost basically said, I don't care. We're taking credit for this. It was that bad. And yet, even though it was that bad, Holland ended up turning this into one of my favorites of this part of Twin Peaks. So as far as the end result, when this episode aired, it aired on Saturday, October 20th, 1990, and it had 12.8 million viewers, which is down from the 13.7 million from the last episode, which is continuing a trend of shedding about a million viewers per episode which, you know, it's not really great. And, um, you know, if it, if it goes down, if, if it continues to lose 1 million viewers every week in two episodes, it was going to get put on hiatus because, you know, you can't, you can't really get under 10 million viewers and still be successful uh, for their time slot. So, you know, keep that in mind with the ratings bump that comes in with the um, <laughs> with the killer reveal episode that they publicized a little bit. And, um, you know, think that, you know, without revealing the killer right then, the uh, the show probably wouldn't have made it to December. So, yeah. Now, even though I end up liking this episode um, quite a bit at the time when I watched it, when it was first airing, um the, the memories are just kind of muddied at this point, you know, like all, all the stuff blends together and I don't really remember too much about, you know, where I was besides, you know, watching it with my folks. And since that's the case, let's get on to the Log Lady introduction that uh, Lynch wrote that aired in about 1993, which was after Fire Walk With Me and after the whole thing is basically the end. And this is supposed to be Lynch's final words. Miscommunication sometimes leads to arguments, and arguments sometimes lead to fights. Anger is usually present in arguments and fights. Anger is an emotion, usually classified as a negative emotion. Negative emotions can cause severe problems in our environment and to the health of our body. Happiness, usually classified as a positive emotion, can bring good health to our body and spread positive vibrations into our environment. Sometimes when we are ill, we are not on our best behavior. By ill, I mean any of the following, physically ill, emotionally ill, mentally ill, and or spiritually ill. So all of this stuff about anger being a negative emotion that can cause severe problems in the environment and health of our body. I mean, that, that seems to codify how there's negative and positive frequencies that I see in Twin Peaks, you know, at least as an important thing for us to be focusing on. And these emotions spreading the vibrations into our environment can show as us, you know, uh, uh, you know, characters or us, you know, anybody creating the frequencies, you know, rather than resonating with an already existing frequency. Um, so, like, per Lynch, you know, do we dream these frequencies together when we ponder over our wants and needs? Um, 
you know, I, I, this is basically treading in my thesis statement, so I don't want to talk about it too long, but you know, it's like, um, you know, is the frequency already there? Meaning like, you know, is the red room already there or is this something that, you know, collectively the people, um, you know, emoting this frequency into the air, like are all of them together kind of putting this all together. And that's how things like the red room forms. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to ponder and there's no way to get a true answer out of it. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how to talk about it any, any clearer, any more efficiently. So, uh, essentially what it comes down to is does this, does this log lady intro, um, imply that Lynch is making us the dreamers, you know, like who is the dreamer? Is it us? And is this kind of how we do it through our emotions? You know, thinking about it this way, it really does fit with this, um, with this trend of twin peaks where the internal is being externalized in like physical shape. Um, so, you know, I mean, sure, it's a big theme of Twin Peaks and everything, but why would why would Lynch specifically use the term illness to uh, to focus it all around? Well, I mean, there's Leland's mental health, honestly, but um, really, it's it's scattered all the way through this whole episode. And, um, you know, um, I mean, the, the first question we're going to deal with involves illness anyway. So I'm going to look into this when we start our scene by scene breakdown uh, or, you know, the, the scenes breakdown um, after after we get some words from our fellow podcasters on the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, this is Charlie Triple C from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, so welcome back. We are looking into episode 11, Into It Scenes, and um, we're starting with the first question. How are levels of illness illustrated in this episode? Okay, so as I've said, obviously Leland fits this, but we're going to be discussing him later. Who else is ill? Well, we've got Harold. You know, he's so ill, he became a shut-in. And we have that scene where he's having lunch with Donna at his apartment. And, um, you know, this is where he gives that uh, Peyton-written backstory about, you know, being the shut-in and, you know, having the diary, um, you know, write, writing people's diaries. He's um, He's used to putting others' stories into a greater context. So this diary... And Laura's diary is now part of his greater project. You know, he's not seeing Laura's murder investigation as important at all. You know, he's, um, you know, the, this this part of Laura is part of him now, essentially. You know, it's like he's the one in the story. And, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's nothing more to do with Laura now. Um, who Who tells him stories that fit this grand tapestry he puts things into greater context with um friends, lovers, maybe someday you will too <laughs> and uh, for some reason, this works on Donna, you know she smiles and she looks down. I mean obviously she's processing and she's probably uncomfortable, 
but you know where she ends up coming down on this at the end. Um, she's she's into it in a way. Harold asks, yeah, what should we drink to? And then Donna says, to Laura. So, um, you know, <laughs> serving a minor wine, Harold? Hmm. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Then he, um, <clears throat> you know, there, there's a certain amount of control and uh, just bucking of the rules again here. And, um, you know, he admits he has Laura's diary here. And um, then he chooses to read something particularly rough on Donna. You know, it's it's stuff that um, Laura doesn't even want Donna to hear about. And she specifically says it in this entry. Um, you know, and, and Harold is quite controlling. I mean, he controls his environment, sure. But, you know, at this point, he's also manipulating Donna. Um is it a protective measure from trauma? Eh, probably. But, you know, th this doesn't excuse his behavior. It's just trying to explain it a little bit. You know, what, what it comes down to is, like, how much of Harold's problem is lodge space influenced and how much of it is, um, you know, the, the, the manipulation men do. <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of manipulation in this episode. And, um, you know, we, we've got um, Donna being manipulated by Harold. We've got Norma um, by way of Hank. We've got Audrey by Jean Renault. And um, there's there's other kind of manipulation all over this episode, too. We've got Leland manipulating his investigators in a way. Um, and then Josie's manipulating Harry. So it's not just, you know, the manipulation men do. It's the the manipulation that the, uh, the negative illness does, maybe, in, you know, in terms of this question. Um, and then we've got Ben attempting to manipulate Cooper to satisfy that clause made by the manipulator, Jean. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all over the place. And, uh, why not? Let's look at Audrey right now, because she is, uh, trying to be made sick by way of Stockholm syndrome. You know, first time we see Audrey this episode, she's all strung out and she's being dragged into a room by Emery. And, um, you know, Emery says, Daddy's waiting. And, you know, it's not actually Ben Horn in there. It's Jean Renault. And, um, you know, Emery tells Jean that she's refusing to take her medicine. But, um, you know, the, the camera, like when, when it's Audrey's uh, point of view, the, uh, the, the camera is wobbly and swaying and, uh, you know, there's speech distortion on it. So obviously she is taking her medicine, quote unquote. And, you know, of course, John tries to take the moral high ground on this. You know, he asks, um, hey, are you being mistreated? And, um, you know, Audrey does say he hit me. And then what we get from John is that was wrong. It will never happen again as long as you're with me, understand? And, you know, then he says he spoke with Audrey's father and, um, you know, it's basically, you know, it's like, stay with me, listen to me and everything will be okay. And, you know, at this point, Emery understands how dangerous Jean is and over explains his motivations over and over in, in these, you know, like, oh, we're all civil. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jean shoots him which is way more of an excessive response than the crime of hitting Audrey. You know, I mean, obviously it's not great, but you know, you don't, you don't kill somebody because they're mistreating their prisoner. Exactly. It's like you, uh, you know, the, the reprimand isn't 
what it should be based on Jean's high ground. So, you know, Audrey is horrified. She's crying at this. You know, she understands what happens. And then Jean hugs her in this this creepy fatherly way to comfort her from the violence that he inflicted on the other guy. But as drugged out as she is, even Audrey knows what's happening here. And, you know, she can't fight Jean, but she's crying because she's not letting him in, even though he seems to be the only quote unquote protector in this place. <clears throat> you know, Audrey doesn't feel protected here, but um, also, I mean, it, it's kind of a reflection on the people who are in the role of her father anyway, because Ben Horn isn't so much better in a way. He um he obviously isn't protecting her more than his own self-interest, and uh, neither is Jean. And Jean Renault manipulates everybody like this. You know, even, even Ben Horn. You know, Emery knew he was dangerous, and so did everybody else. You know, Jean alludes to helping people around him that he's speaking to, but it's always... um. You know, it's less of a mutually beneficial situation than he uh, than he lets on. You know, when he's in Ben Horn's office waiting for Ben, um, he gets up from his chair, sits Ben down in it, and um, then he plays the Audrey tape for Ben. And you know, Ben Ben implies that he's gonna get up like you know why you and you know, he, <laughs> and then Jean uh, basically says you know I'm just the messenger and. Um, then he tries to say, you know, it's like, oh, I'm on your side because, you know, he says you're up. Op the operation there is being run by pickpockets and fools. Are you aware of that? And, um, you know, Ben says, I've had my concerns. And um, this was Ben. Uh, this was John's way in. Uh, what you need is a partner, someone who can take care of these little problems. So, you know, he's playing both sides. He's entangling into Ben's operation on Ben's side. So he's going to help Ben, and um, then he demands that uh, Cooper be the bagman with the money. And, um, you know, Ben pushes back. You know, it's like, he's an FBI, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, Jean, of course, does not back down from his own position. You know, there's no mutual benef <laughs> beneficial situation. You know, Jean just says, cash, FBI man. And, um, you know, Ben calls him out on this. This is supposed to be an equitable exchange. And, um, you know, John, he's all chipper. It's like, this could turn out well. <laughs> and then he walks out and says, expect a call tomorrow. So, you know, what, what does Ben do? He flips a chair. He, uh, and, you know, he, he gets mad. But then he actually calls the front desk for Cooper and says, you know, um, tell him it's urgent. So, yeah, Jean Renault. He's helpful to everyone. He screws them over in plain sight. And, um, you know, in the context of this question, he is the sickness that Audrey is currently ill from. And, you know, thinking about it as John being an illness, that's an interesting context when you think about that episode 16 quote where, you know, or I mean, not, good Lord, not 16. Um, the, the, the one in uh, Dead Dog Farm when he's, um, when he's holding Cooper hostage and he declares Cooper as bringing the nightmare with him. So, you know, it's like, what does a sickness think of Cooper? You know, that's the nightmare. So the nightmare is on the people bringing the sickness. So according to the Twin Peaks uh, spiritual ecosystem, 
Cooper apparently only brings the nightmare to diseases. As far as some other sicknesses in this episode, we've got Andy, who is ill in the sperms, and uh, <laughs> he wants a retest to be sure. So Andy has this positive attitude. He's taking personal responsibility for finding answers, and, you know, he's doing the work. And, you know, be because he's doing this, and then the, the jar rolls down the hallway, it ends up leading to a positive clue in Cooper's intuition-laced investigation as well, which... Um, you know, it, it the the circle brand boots uh, lead to the further evidence uh, to uh, to hunt for Philip Gerard, the one arm man. But, you know, getting there, we've got the physical comedy of Andy uh, trying to run into the restroom and then he knocks out, you know, then um, he bumps into Lucy and then like they're picking up each other's things and trying to have a conversation. And then Lucy goes hmm, uh, because she knows how to connect the dots. And, uh, <laughs> you know, then, then another, um, physical comedy with, um, uh, with an extra of a deputy. And, um, you know, when, when Cooper asks him, you know, it's like, where do those come from about the boots? You know, he says, don't make me say where these came from. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he's, um, all there for comedy the whole way through, but, you know, in the end, you know, positivity, um, positive frequencies, it kind of works there with comedy, probably because comedy brings laughter rather than, you know, even frowns. <clears throat> so it's probably that simple why um, Andy and Lucy tend to, you know, embody the, um, the thematic resonance of, you know, the, the Twin Peaks story. And speaking of Lucy... Uh, Lucy's other man, Dick Tremaine, thinks that Lucy's ill with a problem and brings abortion money. Ew. Um, yeah, first, first Cooper calls out, um, Lucy's anger earlier in the episode. Um, you know, he, he, he says, Lucy, we're at the point to get what's bothering you out into the open. And we get backstory that, you know, she dated Andy for a year and a half. She needed me time, uh, was with Dick for a bit. Um, you know, <laughs> he's, he's asinine despite the fact that he has sport coats and a clean car. Um, when Cooper asks her what she wants after she gives that backstory, um, you know, is it getting back with Andy or to see this Dick? Uh, <laughs> Lucy twice says, I don't know. And, um, you know, so this is her crossroads to establish the comic relief storyline in the season, but it also establishes what she's ill with, and it's the indecision of knowing which way to go forward. But then later on in the episode, right after Ju uh, Judge Sternwood arrives, um, then Dick Tremaine arrives then, and, um, you know, he, he apologizes to Lucy. He seems so... Um, apologetic and properly interested in, you know, doing the right thing. He says he's deeply ashamed of how I've behaved. And, um, you know, he, he must, he must do the right thing. And, you know, Lucy's all about this town. She's like, you, you do, you will. And, um, but then, yeah, it's abortion money. And, uh, Lucy gives the exact over specificness for what it, uh, for what it'll take for him to junction into never speaking to her again. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, take your money, put it back in your wallet, uh, put, 
<clears throat> or your pocket, turn around and walk through both sets of doors. The second one sticks sometimes. Go into the parking lot, get into your car, turn the key, and never ever speak to me again as long as you live. And um, you know, <laughs> you know, she's still kind of concerned about you know how he does things and like how he will you know come across a door that's stuck and all like all these other things and you know <laughs> she always takes care of people even these kind of people and uh you know then she says say one more word and i'll scream and then she does because of course he says one more word and you know he's chased out at this point and uh she closes herself off into harry's office and sobs off screen and um you know she's she's absolutely She's absolutely in her rights to um, have her experience and then be so bothered by a presumptuous man who should have had a conversation with her before he decided to make decisions about her. It's kind of ridiculous that Lucy would ever even think about going back to Dick Tremaine at that point. Um, you know, even in a comedy plotline. Uh, that, you know, today that would just be like, oh, wow, that guy is gone and he's done. He's a bad guy now, basically. But, you know, this is 1990 and men were expected to be and allowed to be that completely ignorant of the inner workings of a woman. And, um, you know, I mean, today it's still kind of like that, even though it's a little better. Uh, yeah. And um, so... I guess because of 1990, Dick Tremaine gets a pass. Yeah, I I guess that's the logic for it. Anyway, at least Andy recognizes that Lucy's in a lot of pain. And he's, you know, he, he's obviously worried for her, even though he's giving her her moment that, you know, she's entitled to. And what was Andy doing when he found Lucy like that? He was bringing Leland Palmer up to a conference room to have his uh, competency assessment. And um, that pretty much leads us into our next question. What can we make of the state of Leland Palmer and how do facts fare in Twin Peaks spiritual economy of wants and needs? So this episode starts with the dark and a scream in the darkness. You know, it's a it's one of those Cheryl Lee screams that we hadn't really heard much of at this point. You know, there's electricity, sounds, there's flashes of of dark, there's lots of daddy in the background. And um, there was going to be some daddy no in there, too. Um, that was going to be part of the soundscape, but it was nixed by, I, I think, Frost himself nixed that one. And um, Helen said, okay, I guess I got close to something. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, there's this pulling through of the ceiling tile. And... Um, there's also the sound of the buzzing of a flat line, um, you, you know, like hospital equipment doing the beep, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm assuming that's Jock's, um, that's Jock's equipment as Leland was killing him that, uh, Leland is kind of living through at this point. And, um, the, the camera kind of rotates and, you know, Leland starts out, you know, he's kind of on his side and then it gets to the point where, um, it gets to the point where Leland is right side up and, um, you know, then we can kind of hear, um, Harry, uh, like muddied in the distance of the soundscape. Um, you know, he's trying to call Leland and it sounds like he's been calling him for a little while. And then Leland finally catches on and, um, 
you know, starts answering questions, you know, right here, he's looking calm, he's looking serious and he's looking really disheveled. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he quietly waves his right to an attorney and, um, you know, he, uh, the gist of it is, you know, he was at the hospital. He was looking for the man who killed his daughter. Um, didn't know his name then, but he does now. And then he says the name out loud, Jacques Renault. And, um, you know, Harry asks, you know, why did he kill, why did you kill him? And, um, <laughs> Leland's answer is because you arrested him. And, you know, the gravity of that moment is allowed to have a little bit of, uh, silent space as everybody just kind of goes like, Oh God, it was, if it, if we hadn't arrested him, this guy wouldn't be dead basically. And, you know, Harry, Harry specifically says, did you kill him? And then, um, you know, Leland does that, that building monologue where he says he killed my Laura. And then he says, have you ever experienced absolute loss? More than grief deep down inside, every cell screams. You can hear nothing else. And then, you know, he starts crying. And, you know, this is like a sickness on his soul right here. The um, the loss of his daughter is a sickness in the context of what Leantland is, um, is portraying to everyone right now. And, you know, then he says, yes, I can. I killed him. And then, you know, like, yes, yes, yes. And, you know, like there's, there's a triumph in that last yes that he puts out there. And, um, you know, the, this, this argument of Leland's works on multiple levels, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it could be Bob and Leland covering his tracks, you know, even saying the name of the quote unquote scapegoat killer aloud. Um, so that, you know, it's like, yes, this name is the killer. And I killed him, <laughs> you know, before, before Jacques could tell you otherwise, but, but Leland's state also works in that he could be that unhinged and he could believe his words. And, you know, he could be that like, um, you know, his memory could be messed with that much by Bob and, um, you know, his, his perceptions and his memories of what he you know, how he killed Laura, perhaps, you know, like the, the blood on the floor of the red room, uh, at the end of fire walk with me could be the memories of those moments, uh, being, uh, splattered on the floor of the red room while, um, while Leland is in some kind of a trance and then he just doesn't remember any of that. And, uh, you know, I mean, th this, this could just be the lodge messing with him because he's that broken. I don't know. I mean, Either way, it is unre <laughs> Either way, it is unreliable information, though, and um, we get more of that from Hawk. You know, he calls in uh, information about the house, like back in um, the the lobby scene that takes place after this between Harry and Cooper. Um, you know, Hawk, Hawk's information is basically there's no Robertson at that house. You know, that house exists, but um, Kalispell is the last resident in that house. So, you know, they're, they're going to be looking into that. You know, they're not taking Leland's words, you know, at complete face value, especially when facts contradict it. But, um, you know, could this be explained like how, um, how there's different Mrs. Tremonds, you know, we, we've got the grandma with her grandson, or we have the lady who they find in episode 16 when, um, when Donna brings Cooper over there. 
you know, technically that could be Leland being messed with by these other people as well. Now we have Doc Hayward's take on Leland. Um, you know, he leads with compassion first rather than automatically disapproving of all murder. Um, you know, he says, I'll tell you one thing. Parents shouldn't bury their children. Anyone who's been through what Leland has is, and then, you know, um, Cooper interrupts him, but unlike Albert, Cooper is stern, but, you know, not demeaning to the person. Um, he basically just says, do you approve of murder, Dr. Hayward? And, um, you know, Hayward says no. And, um, you know, Cooper's calling out the patriarchy of the town here. Um, and it's, you know, he hangs a hat right over Hayward's, uh, interest in, you know, feelings over facts. And um, this kind of matches up with a uh, euthanasia connection in the access guide and his uh, trading card. You know, he's, he's an expert in euthanasia. So, um, you know, Hayward's go-to is to work first from compassion rather than the exact letter of the legal law. And, you know, in some cases, like euthanasia, it can be good um, to, uh, not exactly follow the letter of the law if somebody really is in that much pain. But, um, you know, in, in another, in another sense, you know, Hayward is the same guy who wanted Albert to skip Laura's autopsy entirely so that she could be buried. You know, it's like the, the truth is like a lot further down on, on Doc Hayward's, uh, priorities than, I ever noticed in this show before now. Now, Hayward wasn't in, in this episode much at all, but then Sternwood, he's kind of all over this episode, and he definitely ends up having a take on Leland. So, um, you know, okay, first of all, who is Judge Sternwood? He's a judge from the woods. Um, in, that, in that lobby scene in the sheriff's station, um, you know, Harry describes uh, Judge Clinton Sternwood as... Yeah. Okay. He's arriving this afternoon for Leo's bail hearing and now Leo's competency examination. So that's what he's specifically here for. But he um, he travels the circuit in a Winnebago, and you know Cooper asks outdoors enthusiast, and then um, here he says, "Last of the great frontiersmen, they broke the mold." So you know they're they're giving him all these Western connections that um you know I mean the the Twin Peaks writers and and directors you know everybody was obsessed with westerns because that's what they all grew up with they're the you know the the Marvel movies of their day so you know connecting him to those kind of vibes um, but he's also a traveler through the woods you know he drives through the woods all the time to get to where he's going and when we see Sternwood. You know, he, he actually comes straight from the shadows. Um, you know, he lowers his hood like an important master. <laughs> and, um, you know, right away we get the fact that he's um, fairly benevolent, but um, he's got all this intuition, too. You know, he can tell Lucy's down, and then he hugs her in these big, long... Um, in this big long hug, kind of like how Jean Renault did it with Audrey earlier, except that, you know, this time he means it. And, um, you know, he gives this fatherly kind of advice to Lucy. And, um, he also spots right away that Harry's got Philly troubles, you know, Josie basically. And, um, you know, then he, then he wants to take Harry's mind off it and, uh, asks him to break open that Irish you stashed for me. So, you know, they're going to have, uh, some drinks after, after this scene ends, basically. 
So, you know, they're they're kind of paralleling him up against what Cooper knows because, you know, the, this intuition, like, he can spot people's states right away. And um, you can tell he also understands the woods because he, he asks Cooper, Mr. Cooper, how do you find our little corner of this world? And um, Cooper says, heaven, sir. And um, Sternwood's response to that is actually... Um, based a lot in fact honestly uh he says well this week heaven includes arson multiple homicides and an attempt on the life of a federal agent and uh you know cooper's response to that is well heaven is a large and interesting place sir <laughs> so um both of them seem to be able to recognize the negative stuff but not necessarily live in that state anyway now that now that sternwood's established like that um you know, how does he actually interact with Leland? Well, um, okay, so they're in the conference room. Leland is at the door with Andy, um, and he's across from Harry, Judge Sternwood, and Cooper at the table. And um, Sternwood has this to say before actually trying Leland or, you know, before doing anything official with questions towards Leland. Um, he says, I know you to be a fine, decent man and a capable attorney. And to see to see you under these circumstances is dreadful for us all. The law provides a structure to guide through perilous and trying times, but it requires us a submission to its procedures and higher purposes. Before we assume our respective roles in this enduring drama, just let me say that when these frail shadows we inhabit now have quit the stage, we'll meet and raise a glass again together in Valhalla. And, you know, there's lightning and all that. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> Leland, in, um, you know, proper lawyerly uh, state, he says, would that it were so. So, you know, uh, after this, Leland gets taken away because uh, Daryl Odwig, um is late. Um, you know, the, the guy at the diner that Hank stole his badge. Um, and, um, you know, so they set the hearing for tomorrow. So they kick that, they kick that down the road so that, 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 <laughs> that the, uh, competency hearing doesn't have to be, um, part of this week's action. But, you know, after Leland leaves, the judge basically says, I'll speak for us all. We have hard jobs. And then he leaves with Sid, who is not his wife, but a law clerk. And, you know, Cooper's only response to that is, man, oh, man. Uh, yeah, because Sid basically has all that energy that um, Lana Milford probably should have been imbued with. You know, everybody was just taken with her. And she just, you know, kind of walked in and did her business and, you know, didn't try too hard or anything. So, um, yeah. But, yeah, so so Sternwood kind of sculpts this story to Leland. Um, you know, it's like, sure, we're going to submit to the procedures and higher purposes of the law. But before then, um, you know, the, the, we'll meet and raise a glass again in Valhalla. I guess that means he respects the guy and, um, he'll actually be able to, um, you know, he'll actually be able to do his job, but he also wants Leland to know that, you know, uh, Sternwood still thinks of him as a person. So I don't know. I guess he's holding reputation and facts together as equals. 
Now, Cody Schaefer, in his article, uh, the the 25YL article, Twin Peaks Episode 11, The Hunt for Laura's Killer Reveals More Secrets, he he put together a really good um, way to think of Judge Sternwood. And he says, Judge Sternwood projects a lot of conservative Reagan-esque appeal and comes across as genuinely likable in all of his scenes. But there's still something about his presence that I find unsettling. Maybe it's the uncomfortable familiarity he exudes around Lucy, or the fact that he enters Twin Peaks during a storm and his lines tend to be accented with lightning. At the very least, he represents the old boys club that has fossilized itself in its own power and is therefore all too willing to extend mercy to Leland for Jacques' murder, based on his history with them and the town. A more sinister interpretation would have me believe that the judge himself is compromised by the Black Lodge, but like the Leland-Bob connections, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. And um, yeah, I mean, that, Co- Cody did a great job um, explaining all my issues and how you have to kind of hold them all together at the same time. You know, a judge going through the woods, of course, will be influenced by the woods. It's just how is he influenced by the woods? It's a it's a tough balancing act all the time. But, you know, um, speaking to the presence of storms and everything, um, you know, water and lightning tend to go together with Leland's manic moments. You know, at the Hayward Supper Club, there was rain outside in the establishing shot. Um, you know, there, there's the sprinklers in episode 16 that bring out Bob. And that's when um, when. Um, Bob and Leland kill Leland. So the water presence here is probably the first and only time that the water does not goad Bob or illuminate Leland's crazier sides. But, um, okay. In, in terms of story, um, you know, it's, it's in Leland's best interest to act like a normal person. So, you know, maybe even Bob understands that, you know, it's like, this is the time to be disguised. Um, but you know, I mean, in terms of, uh, the creatives, you know, Holland didn't know about this and, you know, they, they weren't going to let him know about this. And, um, you know, he probably also didn't know about the episode eight establishing shot with the Hayward supper club either. So, you know, he, he just didn't really know to make Leland crazy here in any capacity, but you know, he already was. So, um, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, the, the fact that the rain didn't bring out Bob in this case, it's probably more about just disguising Leland. <clears throat> and there, there are actually a lot of disguises in this episode that also need to be discussed. So Bob disguising himself as Leland is as good a transition as any we're going to get into the last question of our current exploration. How do disguises navigate the levels of Twin Peaks? Now, obviously, we just had a um, a supernatural level where Bob is disguising himself under Leland. You know, even even from the production side of things, you know, Todd Holland, you know, he didn't even know. <laughs> but um, yeah, we've also got a whole bunch of stuff on the um, on the other levels of Twin Peaks. You know, the MT once one. Yeah, for for example is is about not you know it's as not supernatural as you can get 
yet it's a preoccupation from a lot of people in town. Um, okay, so at the Great Northern, uh, before before Ben um, goes in for a meeting with Jean, um, he has a walk and talk scene with uh, Louis, the the front desk clerk. She um, she basically explains, you know, there's the the secret identity travel writer M.T. Wentz. Nobody knows what he or she looks like. Um, is on their way to Twin Peaks. Uh, and you know, Ben says, you know, okay, keep me updated. Good work. And um, you know, is he just giving morale to his employee, or is that actually good for business? Probably both. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, we've got um, you know, the the next time we hear about M.T. Wentz. And uh, Louie is probably the one calling Norma at the double R and she says, this is great news. And, um, you know, Norma's really excited about getting a good review from a great, uh, from a great well-known, uh, travel writer. And, um, you know, Hank sounds like he's totally on board too. You know, he says, you know, like we're, I'm going to get flowers, candles, tablecloths. And then, you know, he starts suggesting new recipes that Norma could play with. And, um, you know, like they're they're like the uh, the double R and the Great Northern. You know, these people are actually changing everything based on a person they don't even know. And you know, they're going to start looking at people like you know, like oh, is there a travel writer underneath this person? Is there a travel writer underneath this person? And honestly, thematically, this is the uh, the physical world's analog for the hunt for Bob. You know, it's like we don't even technically know that Bob is an inhabiting spirit at this point, but um, you know, it's it's going to be seeded into the story a little bit early, and um, it's it's pretty interesting to have this really mundane thing in the uh, the comedy side of things. Um, you know, talking about a major theme of the upcoming episodes, just like before with. Um, with the way I was talking about Andy and Lucy always handling the thematic moments. And sure, in the double R scene, you know, Bob's not revealed. Uh, M.T. Wentz isn't even revealed. But Hank is revealed here uh, through his disguise. You know, he's all this, um, you know, um, aw shucks Hank is the way I tend to think of him when he's uh, when he's putting on for Norma. But, you know, he calls her out about Ed anyway. You know, like right after the the you know, talking about the recipes, then he says, call big Ed. Um, and, and, um, or, you you know, you're still friends, right? And, uh, you know, Norm is like really taken back by this, but, um, but yeah, Hank says, you know, call big Ed, you're, you're still close, right? Uh, tell him to send some new folks this way. And, um, you know, according to his little story about empty once, yeah, that's exactly it. But he's also saying, he's also saying, yeah, I know about you and Big Ed, and you better behave yourself and keep it all business, right? I mean, for Todd Holland, this is another one of those economical storytelling points. And, you know, from the writers, too, you know, that it brings back dread again. It's in the same scene where, you know, here, um, Hank is talking to Donna about, oh, you look pretty today. And, you know, Donna introduces that she's going to have a meeting with um, with someone or, you know, have lunch with someone. And, you know, that that dread right before she meets Harold is going to be uh, good for the mood of her scene, too. And um, and also the way that Hank is doing this is very much like Jean Renault, you know, comforting Audrey after traumatizing her. You know, it's like I'm going to comfort Norma 
except that I'm going to throw in this dig to make her not quite sure if she needs to be worried. And, you know, later in this episode, the MT1 stuff uh, shows us even more about Hank, where, you know, he um, he ushers Toad into the kitchen um, when uh, Daryl Lodwig shows up and everybody thinks, you know, it's like, oh, I wonder if this is the travel writer um, <clears throat> or the food critic. I should I should start calling her. But, you know, what does Hank do when Lodwig just wants to go to the bathroom? Uh, Hank steals his ID and, you know, looks super smarmy after checking that he's got Daryl Lodwig's ID now. And, um, you know, uh, next episode, we also find out that he's still holding on to that uh, DA's ID, um, possibly as another kind of a disguise, you know, like, uh, like a, uh, I mean, it's literally a fake ID. And he might be thinking, you know, it's like, hey, this could come in handy. Now, the next disguise that surfaces is the um, the Tojimura introduction. Um, he enters during a storm, not connected to any story. Um, and all we get in this episode is an across-the-room bow between uh, Tojimura and Ben. And, um, you know, then, then uh, Tojimura checks in by Louie, who's like saying, you know, it's like, oh, you're in from Seattle. You know, Louie thinks that Tojimura is empty once, you know, regardless of whether the thunder and the lightning is making it seem like there should be a little bit more menace. Um, <clears throat> so the nuts and bolts of the scene, uh, we get an immediate misdirection into the empty one stuff. And, um, this is also the second mistaken identity of MT Wentz after Daryl Lodwick. So as far as Wentz goes, the first MT um, Wentz belongs to the Leland plotline because Lodwig is part of uh, Leland's invest or the uh, the hearing. And then um, this mistaken MT Wentz belongs to the Mill plotline because we know it's Catherine. Okay, I mean obviously these days. Uh, we recognize that it's appropriation. Um, I'm going to go into the, uh, the, uh, Tojimura stuff. Um, not right here. Um, you know, uh, Catherine doesn't even use that voice yet. Um, you know, obviously there is a lot of racism here. I'm not super thrilled with it, but, um, as, as context of the day, this was not actually meant maliciously. I'm not forgiving it, but I'm just letting you know that like the, uh, the writers of twin peaks basically just wanted to give, um, Catherine a disguise. And they actually gave Piper Laurie the, um, the choice of which nationality does she want to pretend to be? And, um, you know, she's an old school actress where, you know, Andy Rooney was, um, what what was he of 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 Chinese descent in uh, Breakfast at Breakfast at Tiffany's, and um, as late as 1986 and 88, we've got Fisher Ste <clears throat> Fisher Stevens in the Short Circuit movies, um, you know, playing an Indian character um, in those movies, and you know, it's kind of a beloved character in a way, but it uh, it that that practice does not age well. And, um, I, I think it's basically, you got to look at it 
in that our culture at the time was not able to even understand what the word appropriation was. And, you know, cultures are only able to see what they're ready to see. So they weren't ready to discuss this. Um, they, they were probably just thinking, you know, it's like, Oh, disguises just like, um, just like every other theme in twin peaks. And that, you know, I mean, I'm getting a question out of this that, um, you know, we're, we're looking into disguises right now and things being disguised. So I kind of think that that's probably where, um, where the Twin Peaks writers stopped with their thought process. And honestly, I think the Emmy voters are also, um, backing me up on the whole cultural angle. Um, you know, the, the angle that the culture wasn't ready to talk about it because they actually rewarded Catherine Martell with another Emmy nomination, uh, for, for that year's work of Twin Peaks. And yeah, I will go into that a little bit bigger, um, probably next episode, but yeah, it's not just, um, it's not just people physically disguising themselves. Um, there's also these plans made in secret so that, um, the plans themselves are disguised and, you know, okay, first we got Josie's plan. Um, you know, we see her return from Seattle with a whole bunch of packages. Um, then she grieves with Pete about the mill fire and then learns about Catherine's demise, even though she was part of the planning party of that. Um, and then later we've got, uh, Jonathan Kunigai, um, discussing plans with her too. And, um, you know, he gets an official disguise too. Um, you know, she, uh, Josie says, Pete, meet my cousin, Jonathan. And, um, the two of them discuss, I mean, not Pete, um, Jonathan and Josie discuss the whole plan. You know, the, the job started six years ago. Um, now it's basically down to you sell the mill and the Packard lands, and then she can come home. And, um, Jonathan basically gives her two days to do it. Um, Eckert wants to see her. So the force of Thomas Eckert is already entering uh, through Jonathan. And, um, you know, in, instead of doing it the organic way and spending more time with Harry, uh, we've got Jonathan saying, okay, two days. That's it. In this conversation, they talk about... Um, or Josie says Hank could be a problem and Jonathan says, I'll take care of that. And then he absolutely does at the end of this episode with the, um, with the, uh, fight in the middle of the double R where, um, at the end, the, um, uh, Jonathan says blood brother, next time I take your head off. And then the, uh, the light or a plate or something is smashed and into darkness, uh, for the, uh, you know, for the final moments cliffhanger kind of moment of the episode back in the scene with Josie and Jonathan. Uh, then he asks, and what about the sheriff? And he says, that's not what I asked you. Uh, so, so yeah, um, Josie is definitely thinking about Harry and, um, generally trying to protect him too. And now that Harry's actually getting suspicious, you know, she, um, well, yeah, okay, so Harry is suspicious, but um, the beginning of their scene that happens after the Jonathan uh, conversation, <clears throat> you know, Josie's happily showing off one of the expensive dresses she got in Seattle. And, um, you know, Harry, 
Harry's looking like kind of withdrawn at this point. And, you know, then, then he puts these lines of questions to her that, you know, she kind of stonewalls as, as well as she can. Um, you know, were you really in Seattle? Why didn't you tell me you were going? And now Catherine's dead. And she says, how could you thinking these terrible things? You hurt me so. And, um, you know, she never denies anything. She just says, oh, you're hurting my feelings. And um, eventually she redirects him into, you know, take me. And, you know, she kisses him and kisses him. And then, you know, she tells him to tear the dress. You know, she says, tear it. And, you know, he does after a little bit more kissing. You know, he's finally into it. And he's like switched his modes into the wants instead of the needs. <clears throat> and, you know, that lures him away from answers. And, you know, as they're as they're getting ready to sleep together, she says, I need you twice. And then she says, I want you more than my own life, which is possibly her actually saying a truth to him right then. You know, she's finally admitting out loud. What about the sheriff? And, you know, she doesn't want that life anymore that's involved with Thomas Eckert. And she tries to get out of it here, there, and everywhere. And this is another one of those moments where she's also trying to keep Harry out of it and also keeping Harry from understanding her guilt in it. And, of course, you know, while she's admitting that she wants Harry more than her own life, Jonathan's right there at the window looking as ominous as he possibly can, watching them. All right, now we're finally getting back to Harold Smith because Donna's plan to get the diary from him begins here, and that's a secret plan that she has. So yeah, back at that at that quote-unquote nice scene between her and Harold where he's given the underager wine, um, you know, Donna sees the diary at Harold's. He admits to having it, and for the first time all series, she actually leans away from the secrets and says, you know, be, you know, is it because it's her secret? It's not her secret this time. Eh, probably. But you know what? Um, she actually comes out and, under, you know, says the thing that makes the most sense. She says, if that's evidence, shouldn't we give it to the sheriff? And, you know, um, Harold, you know, he's, he acts like he caught a child. He's like, no. And, you know, then, then he says, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I've read this cover to cover and there are no solutions here. Except, you know, yet he just picked out a passage to belittle his guest, you know, reading that thing that made Donna really uncomfortable about what Donna of what Laura really thought about Donna. But then because that wasn't good enough, Harold kind of shifts gears and says, but besides, she gave it to me. You know, so he feels like, you know, the protector of the diary. Um, you know, here, here's Harold's and Donna's similarities. They like being the one who's in on Laura's secrets. You know, they are the special part of her experience, you know, and, and they love that feeling of being unique, except in this case, they are not unique. And in some ways, they are now essentially rivals for the attention of Laura Palmer, even though she's dead. Yeah, they, they are rivals for being the more important part of her. 
Now, later on, we actually get Donna's plan when she's with Maddie and Donna at the double R, right around the time Hank is stealing Daryl Odwig's ID. You know, Maddie, Maddie basically says she called them, you know, she requested this meeting and she was really glad that Donna showed up because um, Maddie didn't know how mad Donna was about all the James stuff, you know. Um, and, you know, we got Donna doing her noir thing, you know, she's like seething and smoking and she says, I'll survive, <laughs> you know, so there's all this coldness. And, um, then she says, you know, besides I, you know, I never said we couldn't see other people, you know, implying that she was seeing other people. And, um, you know, Ma Maddie catches this. Maddie catches on to this right away and you know, it's like, oh, you're seeing someone. And um, <laughs> it's a really it's a really nice scene between these two, because like you can see them like figuring each other out, sizing each other up. And, um, you know, th this is one of those moments where I realize that Cheryl Lee and Lara Flynn Boyle have actually worked together a lot in in the Twin Peaks series, even though I never think about that because Maddie isn't Laura. <laughs> yeah, so like it it's it's neat to see that Cheryl Lee has 10 episodes together with with Boyle and um you know we actually have her getting a good understanding of what series Donna actually was like to play off of with uh, Moira Kelly later on in uh, Fire Walk with me. And um yeah, it, it's just I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's just my brain playing tricks on me or how old I was at the time, but yeah, it's just something I hardly ever think about. But yeah, Cheryl Lee actually has a really good handle on that, understanding both of the Donnas. But yeah, so after that whole, you know, oh, I'm seeing someone, I'm not, I don't care if you see James, you know, after all that gets out of the way, um, she shifts gears immediately and says, you know, it's like, Donna says, you know, it's like, that isn't why I came here is, you know, the intent that she says, you know, she says, Maddie, I need your help. And then, you know, Harold has Laura's diary. Um, you know, like I thought that was with the police or whatever she said. And then, um, and then Donna says a second one that I didn't know about and he's got it. So again, with that whole secrets, you know, it's like, it's okay if Donna has the secrets, but if somebody else does, Oh, hell had no fury. Um, and Harold's got it, and Donna is getting that one with or without Maddie. Tell that to James. So, you know, like, throwing shade that, you know, she's possibly seeing James or thinking about it, and um, also that there's this diary. And, you know, she doesn't call James to this meeting, so, again, kind of secretive. But, yeah, it's... um. It's another secret from Donna. And, you know, it's like she doesn't exactly care about her feelings towards Harold or anything. You know, it's like she kind of keeps that in a, a diametric opposition as well. And, you know, she's kind of becoming more of a Josie here where um, where Donna's plan is um, superseding anything she might be feeling towards a new person that she's intrigued by. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the 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 way the writers had to do it, you know, it's like every character kind of had to forward their plot, their their part of the plot toward the Laura mystery. And, you know, just like just like Audrey will be in a few episodes, you know, it's like it's not about your feelings. 
your main focus is to get this one particular detail of Laura's life all figured out and displayed for the viewers. <laughs> yeah, so, like from a nuts and bolts standpoint, I get it, but you know, it's like Donna and Audrey tend to like shove down their experiences in order to um, just focus on the Laura bit. And that's definitely where this plan comes from. But at least this one's a little more psychologically motivated with the whole she wants to be the more important secret keeper of Laura's life. Now, the last um, secret plan is basically Cooper's plan to locate Audrey. And, um, you know, it's secret because Jean Renault um, is trying to get Cooper to be the bagman for Ben Horn's uh, business transaction, quote unquote. And, um, you know, involving too much law will call too much attention to it and possibly endanger Audrey. So Cooper has to make a secret plan. The way he's introduced to it, um, he comes into Ben Horn's office. He watches that same video of Audrey um, on the small TV. And then Ben weaves this story about why he's avoiding proper channels and needing Cooper specifically. Um, you know, essentially... Cooper's on to Ben, you know, he doesn't trust Ben more than he can, uh, think about throwing him. And, um, you know, he's, he's, um, he's fairly suspicious about the whole thing all the way through, but, um, you know, he kind of goes with it anyway. And, um, you know, Ben, the way he, he, he tries to lure Cooper into this thing based on the special relationship Cooper and Audrey have, kind of like how uh, Josie tries to redirect Harry. Um, I don't know if it exactly works or if Cooper's just understanding the efficiency of the situation, but he kind of rolls with the direction Ben is sending him anyway. And, um, you know, it basically comes down to Audrey for $125,000. And... Um, you know, Ben, you know, of course he waxes poetically and he says, but I must ask of you, will you take it there? And, you know, we don't get any answer officially, but, you know, later on, um, you know, in between scenes, Cooper basically goes up to Harry and says, you know, it's like, I need, I need your best bookhouse boy. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell you about things. I don't want you to get in. I, I don't want you getting into this, but, um, I need your best man. No details. And here he says, okay, 930 at the roadhouse. He'll be there. And, um, you know, Cooper walks away, leaving Harry to look troubled and suspicious over the whole thing. You know, like, oh, man, Cooper, you too. Um, you know, <laughs> it's the order of Harry's day. You know, it's uh, the, it, it almost establishes, um, you know, Harry being able to be more suspicious of Josie too. Um, for his upcoming scene with her. But as far as Cooper's part of the plan, you know, he'll check in every once in a while, uh, with Harry, you know, like everything's set for tonight and, you know, yeah, he'll be there. Um, and then we, um, we, we get close to the end of the episode and Cooper's there in the roadhouse and, uh, Harry rolls up in this, uh, regular looking leather coat and, um, you know, Cooper snaps with recognition and um, buys Harry a beer where they catch him up on things. So, you know, just like Donna established that, you know, it's like, I'm getting that diary with or without you, no matter what, setting up her action for the next episode. Um, this sets up all the action that Cooper's going to have next episode. In story continuity, 
that basically also sets Cooper up for the upcoming arc where he ends up wearing flannel for a while because he almost loses his job. He temporarily loses his badge for this secret plan. And, you know, Josie's secret plans eventually end up in her death. Um, Donna's disguise plan ends up in Harold's death. And... um, yeah, Cooper's ends up losing his badge, essentially, you know, however temporary. So secret plans don't really, um, you know, while they work in the short term, in the day-to-day survival way, they don't really do well in long term. And, um, yeah, it's interesting to see those three plans kind of, um, you know, set up even more. Um, for potential end games in the future. So anyway, that wraps up the uh, the essential points to um, Twin Peaks episode eleven, and we are here at the sign off. You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit Ruminations Radio Network for additional great shows such as 25 Yards Later and Brevity Box. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com. And if you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week as we cover episode 12, the 13th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. It's a way to kind of deepen and expand deepen the universe the show takes place the show takes place Fans. Golden sunshine.